Thank you. Uh, thanks, June, for sharing. Um, yeah, I know anytime somebody comes to, to share up here, uh, it's a risk um, because there's people that they don't know and, um, and they're, they're sharing very uh, intimate parts of, of their lives. And so, um, yeah, I'm, all, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that, that we get to do this and we get to hear each other's stories. And this is community building. This is where we uh, build the community and the church and, and we become family together. So uh, we're, we're not going to post that because it's a little bit sensitive information. So, um, but, but, yeah, do take some time to uh, talk to David and, and June and uh, thank them and encourage them as, we, uh, yeah, as you uh, build these relationships together uh, with each other as a church. Uh, relationships, yeah, that's what it's all about. I, um, I got back, <clears throat> my family and I got back last night um, about 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock uh, from Virginia. And it feels like... Uh, we've been gone for a long time. feels like that for us because um, it was a little bit longer than we anticipated. We were supposed to be back on, on Wednesday, um, but uh, there was some snow up in Virginia, and so pretty much every flight out of the three major airports in the, in the D.C. area got, got canceled, um, and the only one that we could get uh, to get us back by Sunday was yesterday out of Baltimore, and so uh, we came back and uh, we're a little bit, uh, you know, we wanted to be back. There's always, you know, obviously it's, uh, there's no place like home. Uh, so we wanted to be here, and um, this is where we wanted to be. But uh, once we realized, hey, we're, uh, we thought about driving down, uh, thought about driving down, but uh, cooler heads prevailed, and we realized, yeah, let's just, you know, let's enjoy this time. It's a gift that God's given to us. And so um, it was cool. I mean, it was cold, but it was cool that um, my kids got to see snow for the first time. They got to uh, go down a makeshift sled in a hill in the backyard of my parents' home. They got to ride on trash bags down snow, and, and they're really excited about that. Uh, Manny has been, been our, our eight-year-old has been learning about Washington, D.C., and, and so she got to, we got to go into D.C. as a family, and she got to take pictures at the uh, Lincoln Memorial. She got to go to the Bible Museum in, in, in D.C., which was awesome. Uh, we took the kids to the Natural History Museum, the Smithsonian. Uh, they took pictures outside of the White House, took pictures from the car outside the White House. A lot of cool things that we did, and um, it afforded us some really cool time. Uh, Olive and I had, late at night, we went out uh, on a date and had sweet and sour pork, <laughs> uh, and that was really cool, and we we're excited about that. But for, you know, all of the, <clears throat> all of the sights and sounds and the pl- things that we got to see, the biggest gift, obviously, was that we got to spend time with family. We got to spend time with friends and people that we hadn't seen, people that we cherish, and people that we value. And, and at the end of the day, that's um, what it's always going to be about. It's going to be about the, about the people that we have relationships with. And that is the greatest blessing. And we felt like, yeah, if God is going to give us these extra three days and we're going to maximize the blessing of that time, uh, because that is the greatest blessing in life. And at, when all is said and done, man, you can't take any of the stuff of life with us. The only things that are eternal are his word and people. And so we valued that and we treasured that. Um, And we know that. We understand that to be true. But to every yin, there is a yang. And you know that there are great pains that come in relationships. We've been talking about this for the past five weeks, right? How relationships are awesome, but when they're not, they're not. (laughs) They really stink. Uh, The broken relationships hopefully will be more an anomaly and more of a, 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 you know, not, not, not the norm in your life. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that broken relationships are a multi-billion dollar industry, at least here in America. Almost every reality show 
gets its money based on the fact that relationships are broken. You know, that's the drama of the real housewives of any city, isn't it? It's the drama that, that's involved in, you know, Maury Povich or Jerry Springer back in the day. It's the drama that causes Top Chef to be so exciting when someone's placed on a team with somebody that they don't want to be on a team with. There's a, a reality show that I think comes on, on Netflix or, or somewhere. Uh, it's, been, it's been going on for the past seven, eight years. It's called Confessions Animal Hoarders. And it kind of tracks the story of people who hoard animals. It's kind of disgusting. Have you seen it? Yeah. It's weird. It's really crazy stuff. There's this person who hoards chihuahuas, right? Has to be chihuahuas for whatever reason. They've got like bunches of bunches of chihuahuas all around the house. Someone who hoards bunnies and they've got them jumping around the house. There's one girl, little girl about 10 years old, who hoards cockroaches. That's crazy. And her parents live in that house, and her parents are like, well, at first it was a little bit weird, but we've gotten used to them now. It's insane. She has homes for cockroaches, but the cockroaches obviously don't stay in the home. They're crawling on the bed. She's sleeping, and they're going all over her face, and she's laughing. She thinks it's awesome. People are weird. There's this one episode where this lady had 86 cats. Cats. You know me, for me, having one cat is crazy enough, but she got 86 of them, 86 cats living in the house, and she lives in complete darkness because some of these cats urinated in the outlets and all of the electricity in the house is gone. And she lives in darkness with these 86 cats around her. Why do you do that, they ask. And her answer is the same as almost all of the other pet hoarders. Because she realized at some point in life that human relationships fail me and they hurt me and it hurts my heart to be in relationship with people. And so because of my mom, because of my dad, because of my boyfriend, because of my girlfriend, because of my spouse, because of my sibling, because of this coworker, because of my friends, they hurt me so much I don't want to be in a relationship with people anymore. However, I know that it's not good to be alone. And so I'd rather have a relationship with animals than with people. And so people like this lady live her days in darkness, literal and figurative, surrounded by 86 cats to give her the sense of companionship that she desperately and deeply longs for. I know some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's not a bad idea based on some of the relationships that you have. My hope is that over the past four weeks that I've been preaching here and over this last week, this is the last week in this series, that we will begin to realize that there's something so much better for us, that there's something so much better that is available to us, that God wants to give to us, and that Jesus changes relationships in such a way that we don't have to live either in broken relationships or what we think is the next best thing, hoarding animals. There is a better way. And today I want to talk about the one key. <laughs> I don't, I'm wary of talking, of talking like that and preaching like that. There are one key or seven steps to finding ultimate success and happiness in life. But I want to talk about this one phrase that Paul gives to us, the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian that the world has ever known, this one phrase that he gives that is the key to having right relationships that last and that endure 
for time. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5. Eventually, what I want to do is I want to read verses 18 through 21, but I want to get to the, get to the punchline first and talk about this before we look at it in its actual context. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 talk about the gospel in doctrine. Ephesians 4 through 6 talk about the gospel in action. 1 through 3 is the theology of the gospel, and then 4 through 6 talk about so what? How does this apply to our lives? And we get to this point in verse, uh, verse 18 through 21, verses 18 through 21, chapter 5, highly practical stuff. What does the gospel have to do with the way that we live? This is the word of God, again, for the people of God, Ephesians 5, 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When Paul writes this, he's saying this could literally start a revolution. Because as you probably know, starting in the next verse, verse 22, and then through chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 4, and then 5 through 9, it talks about three relationships that were central to life in Asia Minor in Ephesus during the time. It was husbands and wives, children and parents, and slaves and masters. And in those days, they were a very one-way relationship. Husbands owned their wives and could do whatever they want with them. That's the sad reality of culture in Ephesus. Parents owned children, could do whatever they want with them. So oftentimes you'd see children thrown out onto the trash heap if they were a female, if they were disabled, if there was something that they did wrong. Parents could leave them and abandon them anytime they wanted. And then slaves were the property of masters in those days. And so when he comes and introduces this new teaching that doesn't just say the lesser party must always submit to the senior party, he's saying submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. The empire thought this is going to cause complete social upheaval. But what Paul is saying is that the gospel, when it comes into our lives and changes us, it changes everything, and the first thing to change is our relationship with other people. And so what is he saying here? Three thoughts. Here's the first thing that we see here. Selfishness kills relationships, but submission gives life. Submission brings life to them. Selfishness kills relationships, but submission gives life. Selfishness is basically the simple idea that the world revolves around me. Does anyone know a selfish person who thinks that, well, the world revolves around me. Everything should be about me. It should be about my needs, my desires, everything that I want, you need to cater to me. In fact, you kind of understand where this idea comes from in our lives because the default of our hearts as sinful people is that we are selfish by nature. As babies, if a baby is born, immediately after a baby is born, all of these people come to meet their needs, right? I remember all of the different people that came to us in the hospital in order to check on and take care of the baby. And as the baby grows sense of awareness of their surroundings and of themselves, they begin to realize that people are always coming around them to see them. Well, someone else came to my house. I wonder what they want. Oh, they want to look at me. They want to hold me. They're bringing me presents. They're bringing me diapers. They're bringing me clothes. They're bringing me burp cloths. And what they don't understand is that that is necessary for their survival. And so they cry because they need something. We don't understand what they need. We wish they came with subtitles, but they don't. They cry and so immediately begin to think. Either they're hungry, they're wet. I don't know what it is, but we try to figure out what it is because obviously they need something and that cry is a cry for help. But as babies get older, they begin to realize, hey, you know what? If I need something, 
I just need to cry. And they do. And they cry when they need something, and it degenerates into a cry whenever they even just want something. And what began as a cry of survival becomes a cry of selfishness. And then as parents, we begin to realize pretty quickly, I understand what they're doing. They're trying to manipulate me. Olive and I, Olivia and I, uh, we, re- we understood this, and, and some of you may remember me saying this. When Manny, our oldest, was four, and Elijah, our middle guy, was two, before a third one had even come into the picture, four years old and two years old, they were playing in, in Manny's room. And they called Olivia and me. We were in the living room. They said, Mom, Dad, come. We need you. And we were busy doing something, so we said, in a little bit, we'll be there in a little bit. And I heard a little two-year-old Elijah, he said, Manny, let's cry. Then they'll come faster. I said, are you kidding me? Oh, my goodness, where did he learn that? Well, he learned that somewhere. He learned it because he's selfish and because he's sinful. What begins as a cry of survival degenerates into a sinful cry of selfishness. And oftentimes, babies begin to think, man, this world is all about me. Once you get to that place, there there are two paths that kind of diverge, okay? You understand this. You understand this in what Steve Shogren calls cat and dog theology. He says, "This this is the difference between a cat and a dog. This is why I like dogs more than I like cats. Here's what a cat says. A cat says, you feed me, you pet me, you love me, you shelter me. I must be God. That's what a cat thinks. A dog says, you love me, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me. You must be God. There's a night and day difference between cats and dogs. Cats say, you do all this for me, therefore, I'm the boss. Right? That's why cats are so, that's the, they're, they're the way they are. They're like, but dogs, on the other hand, you do all these things for me, man, you must be the master. It must be all about you. That's why dogs, not cats, are man's best friend. As you get older, are you more like a cat or are you more like a dog? Hey, all of these needs are being met. It must be all about me. You may not say it's all about you, but that's the way a lot of us live. We think it's all about us. We get into our homes, and, 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 and we as, as kids act like, you know what, my parents exist to serve me. And, and, and parents are like, you know what, my kids exist to fulfill my dreams, and if they're not fulfilling my dreams, then uh, they're not worth anything. We think it's all about us. You get into marital relationships. You get into relationships with your friends, and, and oh, man, she didn't call me first, and, and I'm always the one calling her. She needs to call me sometimes, and, and hey, how come she hasn't bought me a birthday present for five years? And, and we get into all of these, like, this, this self-centered thinking that it's all about me, and it's all about my life. And what selfishness does in every relationship is it destroys the very fiber and the very foundation of every relationship that we're called to be in. Have you ever been in a relationship with a, with a selfish person? And what is that like? And could you, as you, as you really reflect upon your heart, are you a selfish person when it comes to the relationships that you find yourselves in, always demanding they do things for you, and when they ask something of you, you say, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? You you are the one who owes me something, and we get into this thing where our favorite radio station is WIIFM. What's in it for me? That's what we think. Selfishness kills relationships. I remember 
a couple weeks back, a few weeks back, Elijah and his friends Caden and Race were at our house, and they're playing. They're, they're playing with something. And one of the boys, Caden, uh, said, hey, Elijah, ask your mom if we can watch TV. And Elijah said, okay. And then, uh, and, then, and then Race was like, oh, guys, I can't watch TV. I'm not allowed to watch TV. I'm only allowed to watch TV on the weekends. And one of the two boys, I forget which one it is. Maybe I intentionally forgot. But one of the two boys said, okay, you go play outside. We'll watch our TV show. And when it's done, we'll come and get you. And Caden and Ray said, that's not fair. That's not fair. It's no fun being in a relationship with a selfish person because selfishness kills relationships. How are your relationships doing? And are any of them being hurt because of your selfishness? Not theirs, but yours, mine. I realize that a lot of my relational failures come because I am the selfish one with whomever it is, with Olivia, with my kids, with my parents, with friends, with family. I can be really selfish. And the sad thing is, that's the default mode of our hearts. We go to selfishness because that's who we are. But Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians to say, guys, when you accept Jesus, when Jesus becomes your Lord and Savior, when his spirit lives within you, there's a different MO that takes over. It's no longer selfishness. But submission becomes the status quo of the way that we live and the way that we relate to each other. That's what he says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, if you have Christ in you, then the new default of our hearts, there's a new ability, a new capability in us that was not there before for us to be able to submit to the other person in order that the relationship might find life. What does it mean to submit? It means that it's no longer all about me. It means I surrender my desires underneath yours so that your desires take precedence over my own. It means that I treat you the way that I would want to be treated by you. It means that I treat you better than I am being treated by you. And that's huge. That I am going to treat you better than you treat me. That I will subjugate my desires to yours in order that the relationship might be strengthened and healed. This is huge. And Paul's saying, listen, this is revolutionary stuff. And the Roman Empire, especially in Ephesus, were scared to death that this is going to cause an upheaval in the social order. Are you kidding me? You can't ask them to do this. But Paul is saying, when we get this, there are revolution in our relationships. I had this uh, friend named John. He's a pastor now up in Virginia. Remember when he, he got married pretty young. He was maybe 23, 24 with his wife, Leanne. And he said, when we got married, this was the way we operated. We saw this verse as our life verse, our marital theme. And John would say, okay, uh, instead of me forcing Leanne, hey, you need to submit to me, it's never coerced. The command is always submit to one another. It's a two-way street. It's not 50-50. I'll meet you halfway. It's 100-100. I do this whether you do anything to me or not, and you, we don't demand this, but the other party does this 100% whether we come 50% or not. Right? We go 100% all the way because we know that Jesus has done this for us. 
We're not waiting for somebody else to do this first. We go and we take the first step. We submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And this is what he said. He said, when Leanne and I are in this relationship, I would come and I would submit to Leanne and I would lift her higher to another level. And then she would come underneath me and she would submit to me and lift me to a higher level. And it's constantly fighting to see who will submit to one another in order that their relationship might continue to grow. That's what it means that we have Christ in us, that we're no longer about, you did this to me, you're not giving this to me, man, you owe me something, I've done uh, all of this stuff for you, you owe me something. It's not saying that. He's saying now it's submit yourselves to each other for the sake of the gospel because now this is the apologetic that the world desperately needs to see, that Jesus Christ is real, that he makes a difference. Again, that Jesus makes a difference in your life will be seen in the way that you submit to one another. This is how important it is to the apostle Paul. Some scholars said, I I read this uh, last week, said that Paul talks about submitting to one another 32 times in his letters. That's how important it is as a barometer of the new life of Jesus Christ within us. Saying, if you've been changed, the outworking and the outplaying will be that you'll begin to submit to each other and seek the desire, uh, seek the welfare and the well-being of others before yourself. This is the first thing that Paul writes here. Selfishness, the default, will kill relationships, but submission will give them life. It's the first thing. Second thing that we see is that submission to others is really submission to Jesus. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some of you might be thinking, man, are you kidding me? This, like, this is a 2,000-year-old letter, and you're telling me in the year 2018, you're calling me to submit to somebody else? I, I remember hearing that at a wedding that I, I, I officiated a couple years back. Uh, in, uh, it was in New York City, and there are a lot of uh, people who didn't necessarily follow Christ there. I read the command, the call, the biblical call to submit. And some people were talking about it, and they're like, that's so outdated. That's so uh, misogynistic. Right? That's so uh, of a different time period. Just that that's not possible in this day, not in the day in which we live. But I think the reason is because we have an outdated or a cultural version <coughs> excuse me, of submission that is not founded and grounded in the scriptural definition and understanding of what submission is. I think a lot of times we think of submission the way that we see it in like, (coughs) we see it in like boxing matches or in wrestling matches or in the MMA, where a stronger party forces submission on a weaker party. And if you actually submit, it doesn't mean meekness, it means weakness. (coughs) The difference is that Meekness is when you are actually strong, but you willingly subjugate that power in order for a greater good to take place. That's meekness. Jesus was meek. But you ask the Pharisees if he was weak. You ask the hypocrites if Jesus was weak. They would say, no way. He had all of the power in the world, but he subjugated, he withheld that in order that a greater purpose could be satisfied. Moses was called the meekest man on earth, but you ask Pharaoh, was he weak? Say, not a chance. He willingly submitted 
to a greater purpose. And this is the biblical de- definition here then of submission. The, where, the place it came from, it, it's a military term that says a person in the military would submit themselves in order for the purposes of a greater good. It's where a military, where a soldier would say, I want to do all of these things, but I'm going to willingly say no to those things in order that a bigger purpose could be accomplished, in order that we might fight for our country, that we might defend our freedom, that we might secure rights for the oppressed. Whatever that case might be, it's saying, I will willingly humble myself in order that a bigger picture can be accomplished for the sake of the team. And again, we realize what we've been saying over and over and over and over again. You're part of something bigger. You're part of something bigger when the biggest thing in your life is me. Then it's always going to be about selfishness. You're always going to demand the rights that you think you deserve. But if you're part of something bigger, then you begin to realize, I can submit myself to others because there's a bigger picture at play. This time of year that we're in, uh, not just Easter, but sports fans call this March Madness, okay? March Madness, because it's one of the best times of the year outside of Christmas and Easter. Uh, It's when the NCAA, the College Basketball Championship playoffs are taking place. I think we're down to the final six to eight teams or four teams or something like that. Um, I haven't been watching because, I'm, uh, I'm, because of Lent. I'm not watching uh, TV and things. And it's a good thing because the team that I was cheering for, the team that I would have wanted to, to win, the number one ranked team in the country, the Atlantic Coast champions, regular season, conference championships, the overall number one team, The University of Virginia (laughs) made history a couple weeks ago by becoming the first number one team to lose in the first round. We made history, but sadly, we were on the wrong side of it. It's interesting because at the beginning of the year, nobody thought Virginia would be any good. No one ranked the university in the top 25 of any rankings, and the reason why is because people said things like this. That team is so boring. And I, I, I read articles. I looked back on it. They said, they are painful to watch. They are bad for the game of basketball. Why? Why are they so bad if they're so good? Because the brand of basketball that they play is not something that spectators and audiences want to watch. People come because they want to see 100 points. They want to see people dunking. They want to see fancy passes, three-point shooting. But Virginia's not like that. They're very slow. They don't have any superstars on their team. In fact, articles said the best college basketball team in the country will not have a single player go to the NBA this year. They don't have any superstars. You ask somebody, hey, who are the best players on UVA? Not many people will be able to name a single player on the team. In fact, they don't get very heavily recruited people from high school. They get people who are not top 100. They get, like, people in their 500s and 300s and 400s, and they just bring them on, and somehow they become the best team in college basketball. How? There's this one guy. His name is Ty Jerome, and when an interview was saying, hey, you know, people talk about how you guys are so boring and how no one wants to watch you and everyone wants you to lose because no one wants to see you play, he says, you know what? Quite frankly, I don't care. But if I have to give an answer to them, this is what I would say. 
all these other players are playing for the next level to get to the NBA. But for our guys, we're playing for the here and now. He's saying this is basketball at its purest. We're not playing to get noticed by scouts. We're not playing so that people will praise us. We're praying, we're playing. <laughs> They're godly too. Their coach is a Christian, Tony Bennett. He says, we're playing because we're willing to sacrifice ourselves and our name for the sake of Virginia basketball so that we can be the best team because when all is said and done, we know we might not go to the pros, but we're going to look back on these years and we're going to have relationships with people that we're going to value for the rest of our lives. He said, this is what basketball should be all about. That's what it's all about. Saying, my name doesn't matter. It's not about me. I'm going to submit myself, even though I could have gone to a better school and become famous and become good. They intentionally recruit players who have a mindset that I'm willing to do whatever it takes, even if it means me never playing a minute on the basketball court in order that my team might become great. Think that's what basketball is. He has learned and they have learned the secret to basketball is submission the secret to relationships is a mutual submission for the sake of the team. What is that team? For whom are we forsaking our desires and our wishes and our Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Guys, we are part of a team that is so much bigger than the team of me. Saying, when you live this way, you're showing people the value and the worth of Jesus. You're playing for a team that's bigger than yourself. You're playing for a team that is your friendships. You're playing for a team that's your church. You're playing for a team that's the kingdom of God. You're playing for a team that's your marriage, whatever it is. But he's saying because you're playing for a picture bigger than yourself and for a team bigger than yourself, out of reverence for Christ, will you be willing to submit and let go of your selfishness for the sake of a bigger picture? And for the sake of a bigger team. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying to you and to me. Think of, again, a relationship. And I know a lot of us have made strides in our relationships almost for the past seven weeks. Every week I've gotten at least one or two people saying, you know what? I've had this conversation with this person and our relationships are being healed. I feel free. I feel redeemed. I feel released from this guilt, from this shame, all of these things. And, and, and we're going for it. But I know that there still may be some things, some relationships in our lives, struggles that are ongoing. And what I fear is at the end of this fifth week of this series that we're going to go back and we're going to be content to have broken relationships and then we're going to be okay just being okay in those relationships instead of striving and fighting for more. But I know that our reality for some of us here is that there still are difficult relationships. Right? And maybe there always will be. Maybe it's with your parents, and maybe it's with your friends. Maybe it's with someone who used to be your friend. Maybe it's with an ex-girlfriend or boyfriend. Maybe it's with, you know, someone in your, in, your, in your Bible study class or whatever it might be. Here's what Jesus is saying. When, it, when Paul writes, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he's saying, don't look at that person. Don't look at that person and what you want to do for them. He's saying, if you can't do it for them, would you do it for me? And would you do it for me? This is what Jesus is saying. I know sometimes you think about that person, you look across the table at them, and, and you just, this, these feelings of rage and hate rise up within you. 
says, if you can't love them for who they are, would you love them for me? Would you do it for me out of reverence for me, out of your love for Jesus? Would you do it for me? When you want to lash out and yell at that person, would you see Jesus' face on theirs? And would you love them the way that you would love Jesus? He's like, would you do that for me? When you feel like I can't do this any longer, that person that I just can't stand and I wish that they would, they would disappear off the face of the earth, when that kid bullies my friend, when that kid bullies my child, when that kid does all of these mean things and, and talks smack about the people that I love, when you cannot submit to them, would you do it for me, Jesus says. And this is what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's not just about your willpower and your ability to do it. It's not because they're lovable. It's because you follow Jesus that you're able to do these things, even when you don't want to. And when you think about Jesus, when you think about Jesus and, and you think about how he died on the cross for you, but he died on the cross for that person that you hate the most in your life. That's your mom. That's your dad that you hate who disowned you, who abandoned you. Jesus died for them also. And sometimes you have to see someone loving someone before you can begin to love them yourself. And you look at Jesus, you think about this Thursday, we're going to remember Maundy Thursday, where Jesus washes the feet of the people who would betray him, 11 disciples who would scatter, one who would betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Then Jesus wept as he washed their feet, and then he went to the cross on their behalf for their sins. And there are people in our lives that we can't stand, people that we'd quite rather, God, if you would take them away from our lives, I, I'm supposed to pray for them, but this is my prayer, that they would die, or they would leave, or they would go somewhere else, or they would move to, to, to Tahiti or somewhere else. That's my prayer for them. When Jesus says, as you think about them, think about me hanging on the cross, not just for you, but I died for them. I love them. I love them, and I will not give up on them. And I have not given up on them. And if you can't love them for who they are, would you love them because of your love for me? That's what Jesus is saying, because when you submit to others, you're actually submitting to Jesus, because he says, do this for me. Would you do this for me? And again, if you don't know Jesus, this isn't going to make any sense to you. It doesn't. But he's saying, if you have Christ in you, if you've got Christ in you, then you're a different person. There is a new creation. You're not who you used to be. The default of our hearts born into this sinful world, natural depravity, total depravity, depravity from birth, sinful before, at our conception. The default mode of our hearts is to be selfish. But some of you have tasted the sweet, sweet fruit of letting go of our selfishness and submitting ourselves to others. And you can testify to the beauty of this kind of a life. You submit yourselves to one another out of your love and reverence for Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. But I know some of you are saying, okay, I'm a follower of Christ. I've tried this. I promise you, man, I've tried this. I've tried this for the last five weeks. And it's just every time I, 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 I see them, I just can't shake these feelings of anger. I know. I've been there too. I am there a lot too. There are people that get me so angry that even though I want to love them, I, I, I can't. So what do we do? What's our hope? I think the greatest thing is that verse 21 isn't isolated in the air somewhere, but it's found in a context. And this is what it says in chapter 
5, verses 18 through 21. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The last thing that we see is that submitting to others is parentheses, super, is natural if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. The first thing, understand this. If you're filled with God's Spirit, it's a natural thing, but that's really a supernatural thing. That's kind of what that thought is. But it says in verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In verses 18 through 21, there are seven verbs in the English language that you can look at and you can understand. But in actuality, in the original language, there are only two commands in verses 18 through 21. This is huge, and this is the key here, guys. This wraps up everything that we've been talking about for five weeks. This is huge. The only two commands are do not get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Two things that he's saying, and he's comparing and contrasting these two things, and we'll kind of talk about this in a sec. The next five things he says, sing and make music in your heart. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Submit to one another. Okay, here's what he's saying. Okay, understand this. Two things he's commanding. Don't get drunk. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, these things go together. And the five participles that follow are the natural outworking of being filled with his Spirit. In other words, if you're not getting drunk on wine and you're being filled with the Spirit, then you will sing. Then you will give thanks. Then you will speak to one another in love then you will be thankful, then you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The reason why we have a hard time submitting one another to one another, the reason why we are selfish is because we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Saying, if you were, all of these things would naturally flow out of you. It explains a lot, doesn't it? Think about the relational challenges that you've had. Are you constantly being filled with God's Holy Spirit? If you're not, then before long, okay, before long, relational conflict is going to follow. Selfishness will always rear its ugly head once again. You know people who've gotten drunk? Have you experienced that before? Hopefully, you haven't experienced drunkenness, but if you have, there's grace and forgiveness, <laughs> and you can be the sermon illustration here. When you're drunk with wine, yeah, you, oh, I've had a little bit too much. People say you're tipsy. You can't walk straight. Why can't you walk straight? Before alcohol, you could walk straight. Why can't you do your Z-Y-X-W-V-U, say, say the alphabet backwards? Why can't you do that anymore? You used to, because when you're drunk with wine, you're under the influence of another. You're not yourself when you're drunk. You are controlled by something other than yourself. And then you begin to say things that you wouldn't otherwise say. You begin to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. You begin to go places you may not otherwise go. 
You're a different person when you're drunk. And Paul is comparing and contrasting drunkenness with wine, with being filled with the Spirit. He says, when you're filled with the Spirit, you become a different person. You're no longer selfish. You can submit to other people. You begin to say things that you wouldn't say before. Man, I can't believe I said that to you. I can't believe I said I love you. I've never said that before. That's weird. But you're under the influence of another. The Holy Spirit is God. And when you are filled with the Spirit, you imagine, in, like, some of our, our middle schoolers are so little and so cute. They're like, you know, little penguins walking around, little, you know, Ewoks walking around. But when, imagine this, like, when they, Jesus come into my life, right? Jesus come into my life, then, like, infinite, eternal, immortal God, Holy Spirit lives in them. It's like, bam, and they're a completely different person. Like, that's God's, if God lives in us, could we live the same way that we were before? Like, wouldn't you expect our lives to be different? Saying, if you're filled with the Spirit, this is the way it's going to play out. How do you get filled with the Spirit then? Maybe I'm doing things wrong. All of us have the Holy Spirit in us if we put our trust in Christ. An alcoholic, okay, a drunkard, doesn't get drunk simply because they've got alcohol on their shelf. They get drunk when they drink deeply of the bottle of alcohol. We all have the Holy Spirit living in us, but we're not filled simply because we have the Spirit living in us. We have to constantly go back to God and ask Him to be filled with the Spirit. It's like, it's a similar analogy, right? About drinking. We need to drink. In other translations, it says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, drink deeply of the Spirit. And he talks about the same language. You know, like you go, um, you go to McDonald's or I don't know where you might hang out. You go to your favorite you know, local cafe and uh, if, it's, if it's Starbucks, you've got a gold card or something like that. And they'll refill your coffee for free or refill your tea for free. And so you, <laughs> you sit there and, and you're doing your work, you're studying, you're hanging out. And you finish all of your green tea and you get a refill. Why? Because you're empty. And because you know where you can get free refills. What's the most number of refills you've gotten in one sitting? I've been at that place, Starbucks, for several hours, and the most, the most number of refills I've got was probably about three because I just started feeling bad. I started feeling bad going up and, you know, yeah, I just feel bad. But he's saying, listen, when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, all it takes is for you to admit, I'm empty. I can't do this. And I'm asking you to give me the free refills that I need. Throughout the Bible, the Bible says, when you ask God for his Holy Spirit, whatever you ask, he will give his Spirit to you. The Spirit of God comes whenever we pray. We're filled with more of his Spirit. Book of Acts tells us. When we're in the Word of God, when we're worshiping, this is when the Spirit of God fills us. It's not enough then, once a week, because as much as we're filled, this is how D.L. Moody said, said, as much as I'm filled, I leak. <laughs> I leak the Holy Spirit, but I know where to get free refills. We constantly go back to God.
Holy Spirit being filled then is not about saying, God, necessarily, it's not necessarily about saying, God, I want more of what you have for me. That's part of it, but it's saying, God, I want you to have more of me. I want you to have more of me. I want you to have more of me. And the more our hearts are pure, the more our hearts are consecrated to the Lord. Right? Not dabbling in sin here and there, not compromising here and there, but just pure heart. God's Spirit can fill those kinds of people in power. Lord, I want to be holy. God, I want to be pure. Lord, I want to be surrendered. These are the people. It's not about gifting. It's not about talents. It's not about the people that praise them. It's not about, you know, the, the, the way that they can spin a phrase or the way they can mop a floor, the way they can lead a song. It's not about that. It's about God's Spirit coming and touching a person because they say, God, I need more of you. I can't do this. I want to be holy. I want to be surrendered. The reason then, the reason then our relationships with people falter is because our relationship with God is faltering. The reason we have immature relationships with people is because we have immature relationship with God. What is God wanting from us? Okay, this is what God wants. This is what God wants. Sometimes you have relational difficulty, and you cannot do anything about it because God is saying, you need to come back to me. You can't fix this on your own. The one thing you need is the one thing that we talked about at the beginning. Just sit at Jesus' feet. Are you doing that? If you're doing that, then it'll show up in your relationships. It'll show up in the way that you lay down your selfishness and your pride and you begin to submit to each other. It says it will always be the one thing. It will always be the one thing. And we will talk about this here at our church until the day we die, that our relationship with God always influences our relationship with other people. It always, always does. So let's stop blaming other people. Let's own our own hearts. Let's realize, let's realize, today's the day. I need to begin, not tomorrow, not next week, but today. Let's not wait for someone else to make the first move. It's on us. We are as filled with the Spirit as we want to be. It's on us. Let's begin. Let's go there. God wants to bless. He wants to fill. Let's pray. Let's pray this simple, simple prayer. Lord, I need more of you. Yeah, maybe the, the, the severed relationships have happened and come because of their sin against you or your sin against them. Yeah, whoever fault it is right now, um, that's not the issue. Right? The issue right now is, is me. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with it right now? Yeah, How is my response? What is my response to what I've heard. Sometimes and a lot of times, what the other person meant for harm, God meant for good. What is a good? It's that we would come to Jesus, that we would trust in Jesus, that we would depend on Jesus, that we would throw ourselves upon him and say, Jesus, I can't. I can't do this. I've tried. 
I've tried and I can't and I need you. Jesus, I know I'm empty, but your love and your spirit will not run dry. I know here right now I'm at a filling station and everywhere I go because you go with me, wherever I am, that can be a place where I can get free refills of who you are and more of you in my life that you would take more of me, take my selfishness, take my pride, take my selfish desires and pour into me a spirit of selflessness that I might be able to love others and seek their welfare above my own. And then the world will see that Jesus is real because we submit for the sake of a team that's bigger than us. Let's pray for a few moments. Lord, I need you. Father, I need more of your spirit. Jesus, I am thirsty for more of you. Won't you come and fill me? I've tried and been found lacking. Lord, I need you. Fill me with your spirit. Let's pray like that for a couple moments together. If you want to just lift your hands as a sign of, Lord, I'm, I need you. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for you to fill me. We don't need to wait for a feeling or a sign. We pray, we ask, and God's going to fill us. That's his promise. And we just move out in faith, trusting that the Lord is filling you, working in us. Let's pray like that for a couple moments, and I'll pray on our behalf. Father in heaven, we're a people so in need of you. We're in need of things. We're in need of power. We're in need of strength. We're in need of love and selflessness that only you could give to us. Father, we can't. We've tried only to come back to another stream of broken relationships. Father, we can't do it on our own. We need you. We're asking that your spirit would fill us now. Lord, we ask that you would do in us what you only can do and that the fruit of your infilling now would be a constant hunger for more of you and the fruit of that would be healed and redeemed relationships which we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ so that all around people would see the surest sign of the Spirit indwelling in us. Healed relationships, mutual submission, looking after the interests of others, in order that Jesus might be manifest and magnified in and through us. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray.